0: we also have to have the ability to use our ingenuity, use our intellectual capacity to contribute. If somebody else is telling us how to do the work, how to organize the work, how to lay it out, you know, if, if we're micromanaged to death, there's no ability for us to really apply our expertise to the situation. We're just a pair of hands for somebody. And that's not very fulfilling. And so what gets people up at work is that, that ability to contribute, to be creative, to use their abilities to make an impact for the good of the whole.
1: In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations, powered by Quantivos. I'm Brian Gorman, a Manifo's coach and your host for Conversations. Our guest today is Kevin Herring. Kevin is founder and president of Ascent Management Consulting. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Kevin, as we talked about recording this episode, you talked about high-performing teams through developing leaders who are able to turn any work group into a highly engaged and high-performing team that sounds like a pretty ambitious undertaking
0: well you know we've had a lot of years experience working with larger business units and then scaling that down to working with leaders and individual teams and we've we've just been working at a long time we've researched it we've uh, we've had a lot of application a lot of successes and we have a I think an understanding of the fundamental principles that really help people to be successful in this regard. And I think that's basically what it is. We understand the keys and we know how to implement. I think that's one of the things that, that people struggle with is there's a lot of great literature out there. People read the literature and some of the advice is really good, And but they don't know how to apply those principles. They don't know what to do with it. And in fact, so much so that there are people who used to do consulting that Changed course and became educators because they said they really didn't know how to help people make the transition. They just could tell them what they needed to do, you know, where they needed to get to. So I think that's our niche.
1: The world has changed over the years. The world has changed significantly. The world of business over the last three years. How different is it creating and leading a high performing team today than it was five or ten years ago?
0: You know, that's a great question. Um, I think that the fundamental principles of what engages people haven't really changed, even though we know we look at generational differences and there are some clear differences. They always have been, right? That's really nothing new, but the changes or the differences may be uh, new to us because they're, they're not what the previous generations experienced. But that's that's really looking at things from an external motivation perspective. And we hear a lot about how do I motivate people? And that's that's where we start looking for What's the right carrot is to dangle in front of people, and and you know we we really don't deal with that. Our focus is on intrinsic motivation. How do we tap those those inherent desires that people typically have to contribute, to do a good job, to generate a great result, and to find meaning and purpose at work? And those things are cross generational. They don't really change that much. But what has changed is a sense of urgency. I think businesses, particularly in today's economic environment, are really looking hard at how they can better leverage the resources they have and do it quickly. And so there's a, a sense of urgency that I think is greater than it has been in the past. To me, that's the biggest change I see, is that people want quick results. They they don't wanna take big risks, they don't wanna wait for a long period of time to see the results, They wanted, they want something that makes a difference now. And I think that that lends itself well to our approach because we've been looking at ways to transformed business units and teams for decades in terms of how to do it faster more efficiently and went from the original multi-year model to you know a few months we could really really make a pretty substantial impact
1: as you were talking you began to talk about looking for the carrot and my mind jumped to the carrot that you identified which is it's not out there It's inside the individual. Mm -hmm. How important is it for leaders to know what gets people up and excited to come to work in the morning?
0: Well, I think it's still important for leaders to know their people. I mean, that's, that's still important. Whether we're focused on intrinsic motivators versus uh, extrinsic motivators. I think we need to understand people, what makes them tick and be able to work with them just like we would with any individual or group of individuals. Uh, But an overemphasis on extrinsic motivation is never gonna get us a high performing team, right? We have to be able to really understand how to help people to get excited about work. And those are pretty common. I mean, we kind of boil it down to what we call the six C's and those are six C's of engagement. And they're context and connection which have to do with having a reason to come to work, understanding why it's important to be there and what the overall organization is about, what they need to do to succeed. You know, if I'm gonna be part of a group, I need to know something about that group and what it is they're doing, what's their purpose? How do they help people? How do they satisfy needs and wants? So that's that's key. First, they gotta know the big picture and they need to understand their place in that. You know, it's not just some ocean of, of employees and they just happen to fall into, I mean, they have a very specific role and they're connected to other individuals on their team and their team is connected to other teams in the organization. So I need to understand how what I do impacts another individual, what they need from me to be successful. And likewise, uh, they need to know what I need to be successful. We need to be helping each other, working together and knowing how those things impact the success of the team and the overall business unit. So those are pretty critical. Uh, we also have to have the ability to use our ingenuity, use our intellectual capacity to contribute. If somebody else is telling us how to do the work, how to organize the work, how to lay it out, you know, if, if we're micromanaged to death, um, there's no ability for us to really apply our expertise to the situation. We're just a pair of hands for somebody, and that's not very fulfilling. And so. What gets people up at work is that that ability to contribute, to be creative, to use their abilities to make an impact for the good of the whole. And so that's a, that's a critical component, um, context, connection, and control. Control over the methods and means is what we're talking about. Uh, and then we also have commitment, communication, and competence. Commitment is not about being held accountable, it's about choosing accountability. So. We, uh, we wanna make sure that people have the ability to experience the ability to, to choose a higher level of commitment accountability for the greater organization. And they can't do that without understanding what the organization is about. They can't do it without any control over how the work gets done and how they contribute. And then obviously the other two, communication commitments, people need to understand what the scoreboard is, what the score is, who the, what the standings are. How the organization fits into the bigger picture and how what they're doing is impacting it so those are basic metrics and understanding of of how we know that we're doing a good job and um, competence is really about both technical competence growing and expanding our knowledge and capabilities but also helping to integrate the managing in the doing of the work so the team can take a higher level of responsibility for the work and um and learn how to work well together as a team to create breakthroughs, performance breakthroughs, figure out what's going wrong and how to make it better.
1: My first professional position where I was responsible for developing the team was shortly after I got drafted. Mm -hmm. I ended up as a basic training drill sergeant in the Air Force. And so every six weeks, I got 48 disparate individuals, various educational levels, various economic, socioeconomic uh, upbringing, and so forth and so on. And it was about creating a fully functioning organization. Six weeks later, 48 more. What a great
0: experience.
1: Um, <laughs> it really was. And, and one of the things that I learned at a very young age, because I was only in in my early twenties was the difference between compliance and commitment Mm -hmm. and how, yes, you can meet the letter of the law, if it will, you know, you can meet the requirements of the job with compliance. Commitment generates a whole different level of response. And the commitment is to the people. It's, yes, it's the leader, but it's also to the teammates. Yeah. And when you can build that alliance across team members and in organizations that might be within a department, it might be across silos, the results are just outstanding. Huge difference, right? Huge difference. And
0: unfortunately, so much of what we're taught or told about how to improve performance is just plain wrong. It's focused on compliance. And, uh, so I, I just reminded me of, uh, an individual I worked with uh, not too long ago who, uh, who tried every compliance trick in the book and was just struggling to get people to take a higher level of commitment and accountability. He's, you know, he said his, he had to take care of everything. His team would forget things. They would constantly drop the ball they didn't seem to be responsible. And he was so frustrated. And um, and we had to teach him that he was taking all the responsibility. He was holding them accountable or trying to hold them accountable. He was using compliance tactics. He was uh, pressuring them, intimidating them, threatening them, doing all the traditional things. And even following his HR uh, leader's advice, uh, he sat down with each individual and he... Uh, Clarified expectations, what we're told to do, right? Clarified expectations, that's a compliance.
1: Performance improvement plans, right?
0: Yep, exactly, and uh, he told people he was going to hold them accountable. That's all about compliance, and what do you think he got? Well, he got more of the same because he was already doing those things. He was already pressuring, micromanaging, intimidating, and all those kinds of things. And nothing got better, and I think that's, that's where the light bulb went on when we came in and we started working with him and help him to learn these other principles and to understand that he was the only one that was really accountable in that entire group. Nobody else was accountable because they knew he was the one who was going to take responsibility for everything. And if they didn't do anything, he'd make sure it got done, whether they had, he had reminded them to do it or gave it to somebody or just did it himself. So that's a, It's a huge difference. You'll never have a high-performing team in a compliance-driven organization. And I think that's, that's, the, that's sort of the key, right? That's the key to the mystery.
1: <laughs> and what's interesting for me about compliance is sometimes it doesn't come from the leader. Hmm. You know. And I, I think of how many days and evenings I sat at my desk as, as a young professional. Waiting for my leader to walk outside out the door, you know I was complying with a cultural norm mm-hmm. that said, "You know, be in before the boss. be there when the boss leaves." And it was time wasted, quite frankly, most days. It was not productive time. It was not time that that was building toward the team. It was not time that was committed to uplifting the product, if you will. It was time trying to make myself look like a good team player. Absolutely.
0: And that's what compliance cultures drive, right? That kind of behavior. I had an individual told me one time that he always uh, left at right at five o'clock and his boss complained to him about it and said, look at all these other guys who stay late. And he said, you know, all those other guys stay late because they goof off. They take long lunch breaks. They're gone for two hours. They're constantly chatting and and they're trying to make uh, an appearance, you know, trying to show you that they're staying late. Well, I don't do that. I, I eat at my desk. I work through uh, breaks. I don't, I don't stop. I work hard because I have other things I want to do. I get out of here at five. And uh, if there's something I'm not getting done, then you need to let me know. But as far as I can tell, I'm pretty productive relative to what everybody else is doing here. And I think that's the, the key is that it's not about time put in. It's about the focus, it's about the passion. And people, when people love the work, they love to be there doing it. You know, They find they have meaning, they have purpose, they have an internal drive, and most people bring that to work initially. They have an inherent drive to do good, to, to do something meaningful, and to be a contributor. And what happens is that their expectations are not fulfilled when they find they don't get the support they expected from their leader. They don't have the ability to make decisions about how to do the work. Somebody else is micromanaging, telling them how to do the work. And pretty soon they become uh, unmotivated and disengaged. And that's when we start seeing people operate from a standpoint of compliance rather than commitment. The productivity drops like a rock.
1: (laughs) When some businesses started calling people back to the office, There were a couple of messages that I heard over and over and over again from my clients. How could they have trusted me for X period of time, a year, year and a half, two years to do my job remotely? Mm -hmm. And now they don't trust me anymore.
0: Right.
1: The other, and I know a very close personal friend who was very successful in financial services who used to commute from Connecticut into New York City down to the financial district every day and sit at his desk until his boss went home Mm -hmm. every day. (sighs) And when he was told, in essence, you have to come back to the office, which in his mind meant you'd have to come back to that compliant behavior, he said, no. I'm not doing it anymore. There's more to life. How important in the work that you do is it to look at the whole person and not just the person in the job?
0: Absolutely critical. And and actually there's two parts of that I'd I'd like to comment on. You know, one is that if you're in a company like Apple, and Apple's a great example because they just went through this, right? Um, and, but Apple, uh, Apple has a strategic advantage that they believe comes from, through their ability to innovate. And that innovation comes because people collaborate. And so they built the, what they call the, what the spaceship, I guess, the headquarters in such a manner as to enable easy and, um, informal collaboration. Because they, they want to, they want to continue to be highly innovative and make it easy for that to occur, and so they created a workspace that enables that. Well, enter COVID, and what happens? Everybody works from home. So now, uh, Apple uh, Tim Cook comes back and he tells people, um, "You know, we need y'all to come back to work and come back to the office." And um, and he doesn't really explain very well why, just that that. He needs them to to come to the office, and people rebel against it because now, for the first time, they've really had a, an experience for some time period where they've been able to uh, know what it's like to work from home, and they like it. They like not having the commute and so on. Some of the more social, socially driven, kind of extroverted people uh, missed all the social interaction, wanted to come back, but uh, but a lot of people said, "No, nah, we kind of uh, we kind of like this." In fact, the majority of people said they like it. They want to come back. Well, there was a rebellion and I don't know if you saw that you know, there was a letter that a number of them signed and, and uh, kind of mutinied. Well, a couple of things there. One is they didn't have context. They didn't understand why they were there, what the strategic advantage of the business was and how they contributed to that, how important it was for them to have collaborative opportunities on a regular basis with their peers. So there was, there was a lack of important communication there. The other piece of that is that nobody bothered to talk to the employees and ask them, how can we maintain this strategic advantage and enable, enable us to support you and what you need as a person? Nobody bothered to have that conversation up front. Now, I don't know what the outcome would have been, what they would have decided, but we're finding it with a lot of the research now that what people most want is flexibility in their lives and there's a lot of good reason for that uh and and because they have lives outside of work they want to be better able to manage and they can do that with more flexibility which is what working from home enabled them to do so people resist when they're coerced that's a natural human reaction and so when we coerce people, we, we issue the edict and say, you're coming back or else, people will take the or else <laughs> in many cases, they'll do something else. And I think, uh, and they lose a lot of good people. And I, I think what they can do is if they want people to be committed, to, to continue to be committed to the success of the business, they need to teach them what's important for the business to be successful. And then enlist them in solving any kind of problem that occurs, that's uh, getting in the way of that. And that enables them to be considered in terms of their personal needs.
1: As I'm listening to you, I'm recalling a conversation I had with Chris DeSantis. Chris is the author of the book, Why I Find You Irritating, which is a book about intergenerational conflict at work. And, uh, I was talking to Chris because at at the time, over and over and over again, I was hearing from leaders, we need people back in the office. That's how we build our culture. That's how we sustain our culture. That's how we engage new employees into the organization. And Chris Chris said, yeah, that's how us boomers did that. (laughs) He also said, Ask your younger generation. Mm-hmm. They do things differently mm-hmm. and they work. He said, you know, some of your younger workers have relationships around the globe with people that will last a lifetime and they will never meet in person. So, what you're saying here, Kevin, again, about you know, leaders being able to ask the right questions and then in my words, shut up and listen. Absolutely. And, and I don't want to downplay
0: the significance of in-person interaction because there's anything that really that beats that. but uh, but you're right, there are so many other ways to do things. You know I have family members who have, who have never uh, who actually all work remotely, it seems like and um, some of them have never worked anything other than remotely with their teams being like you said all over the country or all over the globe they're just they're not in one location and um and they make it work pretty well and i i think that you're right you ask people say what what works for you how can we make this work what are your ideas and think what would have happened if apple computers would have done the same thing and and talked to their people ahead of time and said here's what we're trying to accomplish how can we best do that now i I give you an example I, i i use this example a lot because it just it was such a great one uh working with uh a group in the, in the Midwest, they had brought in a new software system and implemented it. And the end users complained about it and said, you know, it doesn't work. It's broken. And just had every reason under the sun why it was a bad decision. And, and I happened to be working with the time and they asked me, you know, what they had done wrong. And I asked them to give me the process that they went through to make the decision and to implement it. And then they explained that they kind of went through the layers of management, worked down toward the business units, and everybody was on board and said they'd go back and sell it to the end users. Well, there's the key, right? They were going to sell it to the end users. So the poor end users, the people who were going to be using this system day in and day out, had nothing to say about it. It was done to them. They didn't have an opportunity to participate in the decision nor in the implementation of it. And so they did what most people do when something is forced on them. They resisted. So I suggested to them that they change their approach and they involve at some level the people who are going to be using the product and have them evaluate the decision, the options and implementation. And so they did. They pulled a group of people together from various business units, had them research it and the team came back and guess what? They said, this is not the product we would have chosen. (laughs) No surprise, of course, because they didn't choose it. They said, this is not the product we have chosen. Now, we're not, we're not going to say it was a bad choice. It would just wouldn't have been our number one choice. Um, and we've looked at the options. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? And one of the options is obviously to scrap this and go get something else, start over. And we realized that would be far too costly for the organization and probably unnecessary. We realized that if we work with this, um, we can make it work but we need to redo the uh, installation and the setup. And we want to be involved in that and have some recommendations for that. And so they did. Took it all out, reinstalled, you know, set it up differently. And lo and behold, it was the best thing since sliced bread. And uh, you can ask any end user, it was wonderful. Why was it wonderful? Because they created it, <laughs> right? It worked for them because they were able to set it up in a way that would work for them. And suddenly it was miraculously successful. I, I think that just illustrates the point that, that when we are involved in any change or involve people in any change, when people, when something is, feels like it's being done to them, they're going to resist, they're gonna find fault with it, they're gonna find, find it very difficult to support it. But if you involve them at any level, of the process, in the decision, in the implementation, ask them how to do it, how can we do this and do it right, do it well for the business, they'll help make it successful. And they'll own it. They'll own it. That's the key. They'll own it.
1: Kevin, that's such an important principle in terms of organizational change. And it's one that just recently has begun to take root in most change management methodologies. We're gonna to have to wrap this conversation up. Any last thoughts on high-performing teams and the leaders who create and lead them?
0: Yes, I think the, the, the key is for people to understand that there are a variety of things that motivate people extrinsically, but everybody has a, a degree of intrinsic motivation. It's just inherent in every individual. And most people come to work with a desire to apply that in their lives, in their work. And the important thing for a leader to do is to recognize what those principles of engagement are, those six C's as we call them, and to apply them regularly and help individuals to be able to feel a part of something bigger than themselves, to understand what that is and their part in it, and to be able to work uh, as a group of interdependent individuals committed to the success of the whole and to encourage and support that. That's what leaders role is, is to encourage and support that and to help individuals grow and develop and their abilities to contribute and be part of something big and to find better ways to do things, to create better results and find meaning and purpose in the work they do each day. One of the things that, if I could mention this, we had a uh, process that we found was really Pretty powerful, and, and anybody can do this. It's actually fairly simple. It's like a speed dating exercise where you get your team members together, and everybody talks to every other individual one on one, and they learn a little bit more about what each does and needs from each other, and they make commitments around those things. You'd be amazed at how powerful that simple process is. So, we, we put it together in a tool and to, so that anybody can do that, and be happy to, to share that link so people can use that if they'd
1: like. Kevin Herring. President Ascent Management, thank you for this conversation.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.